All right, well, this morning you can you have your outline uh, there before you. <clears throat> We're taking just a little quick break, probably a two-week break from our study through the book of 1 Corinthians, and uh, something's happening in about a month, a couple weeks, an election, and so I went back and forth on whether or not to preach anything on this or not, and uh, I was really blessed by some messages I've listened to over the last couple of weeks, and so I'm basically going to take some of those messages and put them together into two messages. And uh, Tony Evans was the guy to put these together, but they're just good, solid, biblical teaching on God and government. And I think that we need to um, kind of double down as believers and not believe the lie of separation of church and state and uh, do what we can to... Um, fulfill God's will for even our own country. And so this is kind of, you might say, shark-infested waters <laughs> as a preacher. There's landmines everywhere. So, um, But when it comes to the subject of voting, as most of you know, it's a very volatile issue because most people have dug their trench and they're going to stay there. And more this year than any other time, probably in the history of our country, it's a very divisive issue. And so this message is to inform you so that when you walk into the voting booth on that Tuesday, that you're casting what I would say an educated vote as closely aligned to God's holy word as you can. Um, The sermon today is not designed to get you to vote for any one person or any party, any candidate. In fact, there are people here within this small church that are probably uh, both Republican and Democrat. That's not the issue. The sermon isn't designed to make you feel good. (laughs) Not many of my sermons are, but um, I want to introduce the topic of kingdom voting to you. Kingdom voting. And... I suggest that there's a perspective, there's a mindset here that we need to understand as believers, as those who follow Christ, as those who have given our lives over to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. We want to do the right thing when it comes to our responsibility. Um, There's an orientation that has caused a lot of divisiveness, not just in our culture, but unfortunately, even in the Church of Christ. It's facilitated a lot of disharmony. It's facilitated a lot of disunity um, and conflict, even on a broader level in our own society. But it's even in the church, which is really shameful when you think of it. Um, There's not a, a proper kingdom perspective when it comes to God's activity in our society today. Hopefully you would agree with that. Um, The church, unfortunately, has become as bad as or worse than the world when it comes to this subject matter. We've allowed ourselves to be poor examples of who God is and how God functions in regard to government. We've just kind of bowed out of that equation, bowed out of that argument. And the question I want to explore with you this morning and next week as well is, how should a Christian vote? How should a Christian vote? 
Now, you may be sitting there feeling nervous and alarmed that a pastor is going to talk to you about such subject, but I think it's not only our role to address um, spiritual things, but also things that affect our society. Um, some of you are probably wondering what he's going to say. <laughs> Who's he going to endorse? Well, I'm not going to endorse anybody. Which party is he going to lean to? Well, this message isn't meant for that. I would like to simply address this issue biblically. Biblically. Um, and if you disagree with me, that's fine, as long as you do it based within the confines of the Bible. Because um, I'm not going to be sharing my opinion this morning. That's not my role as a pastor. But I'm going to be sharing with you some biblical principles this week and next week that hopefully will guide you as you pray and you seek God's will for your vote. See, once we leave the authority of the Bible, <laughs> once we leave the authority of God's word, what are we left with? We're left with our own personal opinions and perspectives, correct? That's all we got. And we all have different opinions. <laughs> we all have different life circumstances. We all come from a different history, a different culture, uh, different races, different makeup, different socioeconomic backgrounds. We all have different points of view about things. And to be honest, our personal opinions are going to differ sometimes greatly on these things. But I want to suggest to you this morning that there's such a thing as a kingdom worldview. A kingdom worldview. If you will adopt a kingdom worldview, then I believe that we can approach this issue and come out not as a church divided, but as a church united around the principles that we find in God's word. We don't want to be in conflict even if we don't vote the same way. That's irrelevant. It really is. See, until the church gets it right, guess what? The culture can't. The culture can't. A quote from Tony Evans said this. He said, God doesn't skip the church house to fix the White House. That's a good quote. God doesn't. Skip the church house to fix the White House. See, we who are believers and followers of the Lord Jesus Christ should have a much broader view than that of two parties. We should have a kingdom view. Well, what is a kingdom view? I put it there in your outline. A kingdom view basically says that we believe in a visible demonstration and manifestation of the comprehensive rule of God over every area of our lives. We believe in a visible demonstration and manifestation of the comprehensive rule of God over every area of our lives. To boil it all down, we want to see life from whose perspective? God's perspective. That's the goal. Because if we just look at our own perspective, we all have different backgrounds, different, you know, things in our, our background that probably would cause us to have a certain opinion, maybe different from somebody else's. That doesn't matter. What, what we want to do is we want to see life from God's perspective. And God's perspective, by the way, is tied 
It's not difficult. <laughs> it's tied to one subject and one subject only. His glory. His glory. That You can summarize God's perspective concerning everything through his glory. The glory of the expansion of his kingdom. That's what he desires. Now, I don't know if you're a football fan or not, but I thought this was a wonderful illustration. I haven't been much of a football fan this, this fall. I don't think I've watched one game, to be honest with you. But aside from that, the illustration still fits. Think about football. The game of football is played several times a week. You have two teams. They're in conflict. They have different goals. They have different personnel managing them, making up the team. They're headed in two different directions on the field of play. For 60 minutes, they, they war against each other for the simple reason of declaring to the world which of those two teams is the greatest. That's their goal. But many people forget there's not just two teams on the field. There's a third team, the team of officials. And these officials are on the field, but they're not of the field. They're in the midst of the conflict, but they're not allowed to become part of the conflict. Why? Because they're obligated to another kingdom. What kingdom? You might say, well, it resides at... 345 Park Avenue in New York City, where the NFL headquarters lie. That's where the officials are. See, the commissioner of the NFL has sent representatives out to the field of play to represent them. That happens in every football game there is. There's not a football game without officials, period. What's their job, this third team? Their job is is to bring order to what would otherwise be a very chaotic 60 minutes. Would you agree? Can you imagine a football game without any officials? I can't. It might be kind of fun to watch, but it would be a bloodbath. See, when these officials step onto the field, it doesn't matter what their personal opinions are because they have to be adjusted. It doesn't matter what their desires are. Because they have to be reoriented to what? To a higher authority. Whatever this third team of officials decides on the field of play overrules both teams. That's what happens. And this is because this unique group, this unique third team has an allegiance that holds an ultimately greater office of authority than the two competing teams. Now, if you've ever watched a football game, you notice that the third team is always distinguishable, right? They're dressed in what? Black and white. They have black and white jerseys. Why? Because they don't belong to either team. They stand out in contrast to both teams. Why? Because they represent a higher kingdom. They represent a higher authority. 
And when you become an NFL official, you're given a book, a handbook. And the book contains all the rules that govern the game of football. And it's provided by the NFL office, off officials in New York City. And all the decisions on the play of field are to be made by in accordance with that book. They don't have the privilege to go out there and say, well, I think this or I think that. They always have to state a rule. They have to go by the book. Even their personal opinions are subject to that book. Their background, their their personal experiences must be subject to that book. They must make their decisions on the play of field by the book. And they know that sometimes those decisions are going to be booed. (laughs) And sometimes those decisions are going to be what? Cheered. But because popularity is not why they're there, they don't care about that. They are there to bring what? Order to a very chaotic environment on the field of play. And it's chaotic because you have conflicting realities that are clashing moment by moment, play by play, to win the game. Now, if you were to come to me as your pastor and say, hey, pastor, you know, my life is just really messed up. What, what should I do? Got a lot of issues going on. What would I do? I would take the Bible and I would give you what God says about your circumstances. That's called biblical counseling, by the way. After I give you what God says about your circumstances in your life, I would then ask you to agree to be obedient to the principles that I showed you and apply what you've learned. Then I would ask the Holy Spirit to empower your obedience based on the book to bring, hopefully, healing to your devastated life. If you brought me your family and you said, you know what, my marriage, my kids, everything's just messed up. It's a big mess. It's unraveling. What do I do? Guess what? As a pastor, I would take the same book, the same book, and I would give you principles relating to the circumstances that you're dealing with, with the difficulties in your home and your marriage. I would give you practical steps to obediently apply the principles from Scripture, and then I would ask the same Holy Spirit to give you the power for the application of those principles to transform your family, your marriage. If you came and you said, you know what, my church is in disarray. It's a mess. Members are fighting against members and the leaders are fighting against the leaders. It's a big, fat mess. I would take the same book, the Bible, God's Word, and I would demonstrate to you the principles that God has written for us on how the church has been created and how the church should function. And I would ask you to apply them to your church, to your situation, and I pray for the same Holy Spirit to empower you 
to obey all that you see about the principles of how to manage a church and bring harmony to the church. See, the question this morning is, what do you do when your nation is unraveling? What do you do when the wheels are falling off the cart? What do you do when the two teams on the field, the Democrats and the Republicans, are in conflict? What do you do when there's conflict even between police and communities and issues of justice? What do you do when the issues in society are chaotic? They're conflicting with different perspectives and different worldviews. And everybody has a different goal line. What do you do in that circumstance? Unfortunately, and this is where the church has failed miserably, unfortunately, too many who name the name of Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, those who are legitimately Christians, when they're faced with that question, what do you do when your nation's unraveling, what do they do? They change the book. They change books. They go into their political corners. They begin to posture. They go into their individual perspectives. They go into their histories, and they make their arguments from there. And we wonder why we're not able to bring harmony to a chaotic nation. I'd like to suggest to you this morning that God does not change books. God does not change books. God doesn't all of a sudden, when it comes to civil government, say, well, let's find another course of action. I don't know what to do about that. We have to find something else to do. We have to go in a different direction. In the same way that there is an officiating crew who only rule by the book that the NFL gives them, if they're going to rule rightly, so it is with God's officiating crew, the church. We can't change the book when it comes to civil government. We must stop using just part of the book, the part that we like, while ignoring the whole counsel of God. I mean, what would you think of a referee in the NFL who, in the middle of the game, took off his officiating jersey, and went over to the sideline of a team and put their jersey on. I mean, what would you think? You would say, whoa, wait a minute. That's a traitor. You can't do that. That's not their responsibility. They're not fulfilling their designated responsibility. See, it's unfortunate today in our society, and even in the church, that we have so many Christians who put on the Republican jersey or the Democratic jersey. And they wonder why there's so much chaos on the field of play. I mean, one of the great tragedies in the church of Jesus Christ today is that we've lost our ability and our authority, more importantly, to be an influence on those around us. We've lost this because we've decided... to be divided and align ourselves with the policies of mere men and not God. See, rather than be the third team on the, 
on the field of play with the power that comes from and the allegiance to a whole other king and a whole other kingdom, what have we done? Believers have taken sides with the two teams on the field. Unfortunately, believers have allowed the political environment to override the kingdom of God. One thing you need to understand is God has not given his allegiance to any political party. Period. Period. As a follower of Jesus Christ, we represent his kingdom. And we need to be reminded of that. His allegiance, God's allegiance, doesn't belong to a political party. It belongs to who? It belongs to himself, to be honest with you. His allegiance belongs to himself. His word, his principles, his truth. And as a follower of Jesus Christ, we represent his kingdom. In whatever political capacity we choose to position ourselves... That's kind of irrelevant. Unfortunately, we have walked away from the kingdom jersey. And as a result, the failed church has given a great model of how to have a failing culture. It comes from an unwillingness, a refusal, a compromise in dealing with the divine prescription. Well, what do we mean by kingdom voting? What are you talking about? Well, kingdom voting is... The opportunity and responsibility of committed Christians to partner with God by expanding his rule in society through civil government. That's what kingdom voting is all about. Today and next week, I'm going to make the case that it is, the only, it is only to the degree that you include God's person and God's policies in society, through civil government, as he defines it, by the way, not as you prefer it or I prefer it, but what does God's word say about it? Then we can begin to see healing in the church so we can be a model of unity to our culture. We call it an opportunity because, guess what? Every culture doesn't have that opportunity. There are places in the world that you don't get a vote on your leadership. They're dictators. And if you question them, that's it. It's over. So it is an opportunity. Tired of hearing Christians, I don't vote, I'm not going to vote for... We have a responsibility of partnering with God. Why? Because if you look throughout Scripture, throughout the entire Bible, by the way... God calls people to partner with him. He does it throughout the Bible. Scripture makes it clear that we are workers together with God. That's what he has called us to do. So, yes, we should pray that God would heal our land. But guess what? We also have to roll up our sleeves and we have to partner with God for the healing of our land. Think about the call of salvation, for example. 
What are you doing? You're, you're really partnering with God when you come to Christ. Now, we understand theologically this is God's work in your heart. He's drawing you or whatever. But you know what? If you are unwilling to make a decision to follow Christ, you will not be saved, period. See, when we don't fulfill our part of the responsibility, we don't change who God is. That's impossible. God doesn't change. But we may alter how he works. The partners with God aren't dealing with the partnership the way the partnership was established to work, how it was established to run, to operate by God himself. God has lost his Democratic partners. He's lost his Republican partners. He's lost his Libertarian partners. Why? Because they left being a kingdom partner and a kingdom voter. God didn't move. They did. If we're going to see God intervene, if we're going to see God inject himself into the affairs of a collapsing society, of a nation that's been devastated, then what are we going to do? We're going to have to return to him. To return to him. Not just in concept, nor by simply throwing his name around, Oh, everybody prays. Everybody says they have faith in God. Everybody reads their Bible. Everybody comes to church. See, it's hard to make it too far in our society today without believing in some sort of supernatural being, some sort of God. But that's not enough. Guess what? God has not just his person, but he has policies, he has rules. And only as we embrace both God in his person and his policies as individuals and even as a nation, then we will experience his presence and his healing in our lives, our churches and our nation. Another way to say it is the further God is removed from the life of an individual, from the life and definition of a family, from the life and definition of the church or the definition of a society, guess what? The more chaotic those entities become. The closer the God of the Bible is to the individual, the family, the church, and society, guess what? The more ordered and less chaotic things become. Just think back about it in your own lifetime, your own lifetime. I mean, what has happened over the period of your lifetime? God has systematically been removed from school, from politics. Some would even say from our churches. See, God is not simply a cute addendum you throw in your life somewhere. He wants to be intricately involved. 
The theme of the Bible is the glory of God through the expansion of his kingdom. God is concerned about one thing and one thing only, that he is glorified and that his kingdom is expanded, hence giving him glory. And once you leave that, you've left the Bible. And once you've left the Bible, guess what? You've left him. So the one thing we believe is that God is sovereign. God is sovereign. The Bible is very clear. Psalm 22, verse 28 says, For the kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations, not just the church, over the nations. Psalm 33, 12, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. Psalm 103.19, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. It doesn't matter whether you acknowledge his rulership or not. It always cracks me up when I hear people say, well, he's not, speaking of the president, he's not my president. What does that even mean? It's, it's, a, it's a ridiculous statement. Unless you're not a citizen of this country, then yeah, you could say he's not your president. But if you're a citizen, guess what? The way it works, pal, he's your president. See, the boundary lines of God's sovereignty are non-negotiable. They're non-negotiable. Why? Because he has established him. He has established them. He alone has the power to do it. It's similar even to the boundary lines in a football Field on the football field of play on a game. And in between the boundary lines on the football field, the players have a certain freedom. The coaches have a certain freedom to call plays. The players have a certain freedom to do certain things on that field of play. You can't have someone run out for a pass and go up in the stands and run through the tunnel and come out on the other side. And, oh, there, there we are. You can't do that. Why? Because they've left the field of play. There's a boundary line. See, God has given us the freedom to make decisions. But it's on the field of life. It has boundaries. And he's established these boundaries. Daniel chapter 4, verse 17 says the sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know, listen, that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. Or Daniel 4.26, it says, And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, he says, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. So let's get it straight. He is king, and he's running his kingdom. And guess what? His kingdom involves nations. I hear people say all the time, well, you know, in America, you can't have a a theocracy, you know, you can't be, you know, saying that God is the, the king. Now, we're not like Israel. But guess what? 
We don't just have a, a theocracy over our nation. We have a theocracy over all the nations. God is in control of them. What you should be concerned with is when you have certain religions that set themselves up to rule over people, right? Then you've got problems. Or even worse yet, you have humans set up outside of the bounds of God to rule over people. All of a sudden, you don't have a theocracy. All of a sudden, you're, you're run by a bunch of failed, sinful human beings. We have to be careful with that. God is king. He's ruler of his kingdom. The Bible refers to kings, and we don't understand that growing up in America. So we vote for things like presidents and things like senators and house of representatives and mayors and governors, all the way down to those who represent the local civil government, even in our own city. And you know what we want, if we're honest, we want our person to win. We don't go into the, the voting booth voting for somebody saying, I hope this, this, this sucker loses. Man, I'm voting for this guy. I just hope he loses. No, you want your, your person to win. I mean, that's part of politics, isn't it? That's why we vote. But we also have to understand what Daniel 2.21 says. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. Speaking of God. And you say, well, what happens when you take God out of the picture like we've done? Well, turn over to the New Testament book of Romans. Romans chapter 1. Look at verse 18. Told you this wasn't going to be encouraging, but hopefully in the end it will be. Romans chapter 1, look at verse 18. This is basically what happens when you choose to remove God from society. It says in verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness, what do they do? It says suppress, they hide the truth. What can, we, what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Just look around, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in things that have been made, so they're without excuse. If you walk into a room and you see a painting on the wall, you don't sit there and scratch your head and try to figure out for 30 minutes, gee, I wonder where that painting came from. I mean, did it just, wow, there's a painting. No. Common sense tells you what? There's a painter somewhere in the world that painted that painting. You're without excuse. Verse 21, for although they knew God, knew about him really, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile, useless in their thinking, in their foolish Hearts, it says, were darkened. Look at verse 22, claiming to be wise. Boy, isn't that, isn't that what we see out there? 
Everybody's got the right answer, right? Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creepy things, creeping things. Verse 24, therefore, because they refused to honor God, God gave them up to the lust of their heart, to impurity, to dishonoring their own bodies among themselves. Why? Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. They said, we're not going to listen to what you say about yourself, God. We're going to make up our own God. Because we're not comfortable with the God as you describe yourself in your word. We're going to invent our own God. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, animals, and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up to lust of their hearts to impurity, to dishonoring of their own bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And they worshiped and they served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Now, if you can't see that people are worshiping the creation today and not the creator, you need to open your eyes. If I go on in front of my house and cut down a tree, I'll probably go to jail. It's true. But you can kill unborn babies all day long, and, well, that's, there's nothing wrong with that. There's a problem. Verse 26, For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. He said, okay, you're not going to play by my rules? <laughs> For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameful acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. This is a picture, and you can go on and and, and read more, but that's a picture of what happens when you reach in and you say, I don't want God in our society. I don't want God in our schools. I don't want politicians to talk about God. Proverbs 14.34 says, Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. See, if you're a Christian and you name the name of the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, you don't leave, you don't get to leave God out when you walk into that voting booth. You don't just get to vote because you like it or you want to. As a believer, you only get to vote for his glory and for the expansion of his kingdom. Now, there's a lot of variances under that, specific applications and all that, specific policies. Unless you vote for that, then you have not put God in his sovereign, proper place over the nations, which involves your vote because you're voting for the nation. So it raises the question, well, if you're a committed Christian, how would God have you to vote? I remember growing up in Pennsylvania, Montoursville, Pennsylvania, when I went to school. From kindergarten up to 12th grade, every day, 
in class Monday through Friday before the principal would come on the announcement and he would lead us in the Pledge of Allegiance. Pledge of Allegiance to the flag, the United States of America. Right? That's what we would do. And we were reminded every day in school that we were to recommit ourselves to the fidelity of our nation. We would face the flag and we would recite the Pledge of Allegiance. See, the concept of this pledge of allegiance or this covenant is not American. We think, oh, that's just an American mindset. No, it's not. The concept of agreeing and committing yourself to the well-being of your nation is a biblical concept. It's a biblical concept. The Bible endorses covenants. In God's kingdom, there are four covenantal relationships, you might say, four systems of government, and they're listed there. First of all, self-government. The goal of self-government is is to what? Is to govern oneself according to the principles and precepts found in God's law. That's what we're called to do as Christians, as individuals. That's what Ecclesiastes tells us. Fear God and keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of men. Secondly, you see not only self-government, but you have family government or covenant of family. God established the family as the foundation of civilization from the very beginning. Adam and Eve, one man, one woman for life. They were told to multiply. The Bible tells us that Christ is the head of the husband and the, the The husband is the head of the wife, and that the parents are the heads over their children. That's the family unit as we know it. You also have the church, the government of the church. You have church leaders, you have members of the church. And we're to govern matters within the church. And serve as the moral conscience, you might say, for the civil government, which is the fourth one. See, the progress of a nation is directly related to the state of its morality. You see that in Scripture. We see it in our own country. Civil government is that system that has been set in place by God to create and maintain a righteous and just environment in which Freedom can flourish. That's the role of civil government. To protect the righteous and to judge the evildoers. To carry out judgment. That's the role of civil government. And when you begin to say, well, no, we don't, we don't want anybody to be judged. Just let everybody run wild in the streets. We don't need the police you can see where that would create chaos. See, it's a representative system designed to manage society 
in an orderly fashion. Yet it's to do so without interfering with or negating or contradicting God's other governing agencies. So the civil government necessarily shouldn't be saying how you should parent your children or how you should run your church or even more personal, how you should run your own life. So you can see where things got turned upside down somewhere because that's all the government does. Civil government was established to support, not replace the institutions of the family and the church. So that your self-government, through the maximum expression of freedom, can be experienced and protected. It's in our Pledge of Allegiance, one nation under God, resulting in liberty and justice, what? For all. The people that established our company weren't a bunch of dummies. They knew what they were doing. I really believe that they were led by God to do what they did. The assumption was that if, if God was not part of this equation of these governing authorities, then unity would be in trouble. Liberty would be in trouble. Justice would be in trouble. Why? Because the relationship to God was not as it ought to be. What is a covenant? A covenant is a divinely created relational bond. It's something God creates. It's an agreement. And all four of those systems of government agree to be covered by God. That's the scriptural model. A covenant, put it this way, is designed to cover you. Think of an umbrella, for example. Um, if it was raining outside, right, and you had your umbrella and you went outside and you opened your umbrella, would it still be raining? Yeah, the umbrella doesn't stop the rain. What does the umbrella do? The umbrella stops the rain from falling on you. Why? Because you're under the cover of the umbrella. That's what God's covenant does for us. We're covenantially covered. And it's to the degree that we operate under the umbrella of God's covering, this, this covenant of God, that we receive his blessings upon our lives and our nation. The further you move away from or outside the bounds of the umbrella, guess what? You're going to get wet. You're not going to be covered anymore. That's his covenant of mutual partnership. The further you move from his covering, the further you move from his blessings. God made this clear. We read this, Psalm 33, Blessed is a nation whose God is the Lord. See, that's exactly our, our problem as a people and even as a nation. We, we love to recognize God as a person, don't we? We just do. 
read our Bibles, pray, do all these things, go to church. But we fail when it comes to recognizing his policies. And God requires both. He says, yeah, hey, I'm thrilled you're recognizing me as a person. But I also gave you some principles, some policies to live your life by. You can't ignore them and claim to still be recognizing me as a person. That's why he sent forth principles and policies alongside of his person that would govern the covenant that would benefit the nation, who not only ascribes to them, acknowledges them, but lives by them. And when you, when you strive to remove God's policies and even his person from society, here, the separation of church and state, the separation of church and state. Ridiculous. You can't. You can't separate the two. I mean, just take a stroll through Washington, D.C. and look on some of the buildings. God's everywhere. Everywhere. Why? Because the founders knew you couldn't separate those two. But when you do, if you choose to, guess what? Guess what happens to society? Chaos. Why? Because where did the refs go? Where did the officiating team go? They left the field. And they joined one of the other teams, and everybody's battling it out. See, if you're a casual Christian, or you're, you're a cultural Christian, or maybe you're just a political pundit, of course, you know what? Vote however you feel. But as believers, as committed followers of Christ, if those who name the name of Jesus Christ, our desire should be to vote for God. Well, how does God vote, you say? <laughs> Quickly. Third point. What side is God on? Turn back to Joshua. Joshua, chapter 5 in the Old Testament. Joshua here in Joshua chapter 5 is preparing for a battle. We know it to be the battle of what? Jericho, right? Now, God has already, Joshua is Israel's leader, you might say, and under God's authority. And God has promised him victory. But in order for this victory to take place, Joshua has to partner with God. God says, hey, I got this for you, but you're going to have to do a couple things. God will grant victory, but he will grant victory only on God's terms. In other words, the walls of Jericho are not just going to fall down because God says so. Joshua, the armies, had to do something first. He had to do something for the walls to fall down and for God to give him the national victory that he was looking for. Well, look at verse 13. Joshua 5, verse 13. It says, when Joshua was by Jericho, he knew this battle was going to happen, so as a good military leader and head of his country, he's out there looking over the horizon, kind of scoping it out. He said he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold... A man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. So here's the military leader of Israel out there scoping out Jericho, how this is going to go down, making his strategy. All of a sudden, a man with a sword appears. Now, obviously, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that this guy's got a sword. He can do some damage. Um, You know, where is this guy? 
Who is he? Where is he? What side, right, is he going to be on? Is this somebody from Jericho that came out and kind of did a preliminary hit on me? Or is, is this guy going to be on my side? So Joshua is no dummy. He goes over to him. He says, he went to him and said to him, are you for us? Who's us? Israel, right? God's people. Those who have the Ten Commandments, the law of God, the chosen people. Are you for us? Or are you for our adversaries? Those heathens over there in Jericho who don't even know God's name. I mean, really, it's a picture of the question of voting. It really is, if you think about it. Which side are you on? People want to know. Inquiring minds want to know. Are you Democratic? Are you Republican? Are you Libertarian? So Joshua asked the question here, are you for us? That's, he's kind of saying, are you for the conservative side? I mean, Israel was God's people. They were definitely more conservative than the liberal people of Jericho who didn't even know who God was, probably. Which side are you on, he asks. Are you Democrat? Are you Republican? Are you liberal? Are you conservative? Are you with us? Are you with them? I mean, after all, we're God's chosen people. He wants to know because he's got to prepare for this battle. And if this person is, is for his enemies, then he's still going to fight. But boy, it's going to be a tough go, right? Because then you got the people of Jericho. And then you have this guy with his giant sword and his army. But if this guy's on our side, then... Hey, we might not have to fight as hard because we'll outnumber them. I want you to know, I want to know whose side you're on. That's, that's what he's asking. Are you for our adversaries? Or are you for us? Are you for the liberals? Or are you for the conservatives? Now remember, he's the captain of an army, it says, of the Lord's army more specifically. So Joshua wants to know how to, pre- to, to prepare for this battle. Now, what we call this, this, this person who appears theologically, and I can't get into this for time's sake, but we call it a theophany, or more specifically here, a Christophany. And what that means is there were times when the pre-incarnate Christ would appear in the Old Testament. A Christophany, or when God appeared as he did to Moses, a theophany. He makes an appearance. Well, here's the appearance of the pre-incarnate Christ, theologians tell us, in the Old Testament. And Joshua wants to know, whose side are you on? Now look at what he says in verse 14. The captain of the army, the pre-incarnate Christ, he said, no, no, Not going to pick sides. No. The answer is no. But I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. What do you tell Joshua? I'm not on either side, pal. You mean you're not on the side of the 
the conservatives? You're not on the side of Israel? Wait a minute. You're the captain of the Lord's army. Nope. On the other hand, you're not on the side of the liberals either. You're not on the side of Jericho. What Joshua had to understand is what he was saying was, I'm not on your side just because you're conservative, just because you're my chosen people. And I'm not on Jericho's side. They don't even know my name. I'm not voting for either one of you. So let me tell you God's political position. God is a kingdom independent. God is a kingdom independent. Just because you're a Christian, just because you belong to Israel, doesn't mean he's on your side when it comes to battles. doesn't mean that. You can see even in the history of Israel, Sometimes God wasn't on their side. We, we saw that in our study in Habakkuk, right? He's telling Joshua, the head of Israel, God's people, no, I'm not on your side. A lot of Christians think just because we're Christian, God is on our side. Or just because we're a Christian nation, God owes it to us somehow. I mean, it sounds right in our own logic But here you have the pre-incarnate Christ, God's manifestation in the Old Testament, and he said, no. I'm not on either side. I'm a kingdom independent. And by the way, all believers, every Christian, should be a kingdom independent. Now, you may vote Democratic, you may vote Republican, you may vote Libertarian, you might write somebody in, whatever. But hear me out. The only thing that you are obligated to be, obliged to be, if you want God on your side, is a kingdom independent. That means you can be Democratic light or Republican light. I'm going to vote over here, or I'm going to vote over there. But you know what? I'm not obliged to either. Because I belong to another order. I belong to another king and another kingdom. What the captain says is, <clears throat> Joshua, I did not come here to take sides. I did not take, come here to take sides. I came here to take over, (laughs) period. See, God is not here to take your side or take their side. He's here to take over. Why? As we saw, he rules the nations. It's his right. Guess what? That means he's calling the shots. He has the last word. That means he determines how things are going to work out. Tony Evans said this, the God of the Bible does not ride on the backs of donkeys and elephants. (laughs) The God of the Bible does not ride on the backs of donkeys and elephants. See, the God of the Bible is not first a Democrat or a Republican. The God of the Bible is his own independent. He only votes for himself, his agenda. The problem occurs because 
No political party only votes God's way all the time. See, that's the problem. The problem is that among men, they pick and choose. Some pick righteousness, others pick justice, judgment. Some pick an emphasis on life in the the womb. Some pick life justice to the tomb. See, we pick and choose as though God is divided in a way he is not. And Joshua learned a great lesson that we should learn for ourselves today when it comes to civil government. Don't think I'm on your side just because you're my people. I mean, that's really why we see so much brokenness in our own lives and in churches. Unless we allow God on every issue to make the final decision, regardless of how you were raised, regardless of your skin color, regardless of your political background or your allegiances. I mean, I'm not saying you can't be a Democrat or a Republican. I'm not saying that. Please understand me. Just guard your obligation. God wants to have the final say. He rules because we get to partner with him. That's a blessing. The issue is God only votes for himself. And that's what the angel said, basically. He said, Joshua, I vote for me, even though you're my people. You're partnering with me. Just because you're the church, that doesn't mean that I'm going to function with you. Because guess what? You may not be functioning with me. I would say that the church is the cause of a lot of this division that we have in our society, to be honest. Because they're not modeling unity in Christ. But the good news is it can also be the cure, can it not? What is God? He is a kingdom independent. We should all be kingdom independents because no party will hold your total allegiance. Because what happens? Once they veer from God's perspective, from God's worldview, you should no longer be committed to it. God is only committed to himself. So it says that Joshua heard no. But then it says, Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. See, we need to realign our allegiance, not to a party, but back to the God of the Bible. God be true and every man a liar. And God gave him an odd strategy as you continue to read there through Joshua if you want to. I mean, it's something we would never expect to happen. You know, march around the city and then the walls come out. Come on. That's just kind of weird. But he gave him an odd strategy for a supernatural victory. So what is a kingdom voter? It's one who understands that he's been given the opportunity and responsibility to partner with God for the expansion of his rule in society through civil government. Well, as we come to the close here, I want to share a story with you. 
there was an umpire in the old, um, before they were integrated, the old Negro um, baseball um, league. Thank you. And his name was Bill Clem. And he was a black umpire in the old Negro League. And in one of the games when he was umpiring, it was a close game. And it was the bottom of the ninth, and the winning run was on third base. And the batter hit a a ground ball to the infield. And as the runner on third base was making his way to home base to score the winning run, seeking to win the game, the field was really dusty, really dry, dusty. And as the, the fielder threw the, the ball to the catcher and he went down to tag the runner, all you saw was a you know, cloud of dust. Couldn't see anything. It made it impossible for anyone really to decide whether he was safe just by looking at it. And the whole game depended on this call. And so right afterwards, both dugouts came out of their, both teams emptied out of their dugouts, and they're running out to them, and they're yelling, one group saying, safe, 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 because they wanted to win the game. The other, no, he's out, he's out, he's out, because they wanted to win the game. And this conflict erupted right there at home plate. And in the midst of the chaos, (laughs) Bill Clem, the, the umpire, Everybody's shouting, he took off his mask and he threw it on the ground. And he said this, everybody just shut up. Shut up. Because it ain't nothing till I call it. See, folks, <laughs> what? the dust is flying everywhere. You got the Dems over here, you got the Republicans over here, you got all the other groups. One group is saying this, another group is saying that. I really believe God is in heaven and he's looking down and he's saying, Shut up, just shut up. It ain't nothing till I call it. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for your encouragement. Lord, it is tumultuous times we live in and no matter what our political persuasion may be, Father, we, we want to represent you to the best of our ability. And, Lord, there's issues all over the place. There's no perfect party. There's no perfect candidate. But, Lord, as we see next week, that we can use principles in your word to guide us, to lead us, to stand for righteousness. And, Father, we do pray that you would Protect our country during this time. Protect our leaders on both sides of the aisle. Lord, that somehow you would be able to speak truth into their hearts. That you would tap them on the shoulder and remind them that they're just your servants. That they shouldn't be in it just for the power or the money. But Lord, they're there to serve us, the people, and to serve you as your agents for civil government. And so, Lord, we pray that your your work would continue. And, Lord, we know you have a plan and a purpose, and I know that there's a lot of uh, nervousness going on. There's a a lot of um, turmoil even within the church. 
not knowing who will be our next president or who will be our next local officials or representatives, whatever. But Lord, you do. And you have a purpose and a plan. And Lord, we thank you that you establish authorities over us. And Father, you also bring them down sometimes. So Lord, we just pray that your will would be done. And Father, thank you for partnering with us that we do have the freedom in this country to go and vote. And we pray that we would do our best to vote in a a way that represents a biblical standard. And uh, we thank you. We pray, Lord, today, if there's anyone here who's yet to put their faith or trust in Christ, Lord, he is the captain of the Lord's army. Um, If you're not on his team, then you're on a losing team. The Bible is very clear that we've all sinned, we've all fallen short of God's glory, we all need a Savior to save us from the impending wrath of God. And Lord, I pray for each heart that's represented here today that, Lord, if if we have folks here through the live stream that have not yet put their faith or trust in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, I pray that they would turn from their sin, they would acknowledge their sin and turn from their sin, and then acknowledge Christ and his work on on Calvary. He was the perfect sacrifice. He came to this earth. He lived in a human body for 30-some years, a perfect life, and then he went to the cross. He gave up his life freely. He died to pay for our sins. And when we acknowledge that his work on the cross was for us, and we acknowledge that on the third day he rose from the dead, That was God approving his sacrifice. When we acknowledge these things, that's that's the gospel. That's the good news of salvation. And so, Lord, I pray that you could do that work in hearts this morning, that you would draw them to you, that you would convict them of their own sin. You would cause them to turn, to repent, and turn to the Savior. Lord, if this nation is going to turn around, it's going to have to turn around one heart at a time, one life at a time doesn't happen by a political party or a political agenda. It happens because you are working out your kingdom plan in the hearts and lives of people. And Father, we just thank you for our time across the way afterwards that you would just bless food to our bodies and the time together as the body of Christ. Pray you dismiss us with your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen.